As I said earlier, my name is Walter, and I will be finishing out our study of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24 today. And uh, as you may surmise, we have a lot to cover here. Uh, as we begin, I really want to start thinking through uh, the reality of spiritual warfare, that uh, as we talk about these words, uh, spiritual warfare, they're very loaded, if you will. Um, there are many different camps that people fall in as they start to think through what this looks like. Uh, C.S. Lewis once remarked, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are both equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Uh, You see, what C.S. Lewis is saying there is that on a normal group of people, some will lean towards there's no such thing as demons and spiritual warfare. Others will go to the opposite extreme and say everything is about spiritual warfare. Everything that could go wrong as in getting a flat tire can mean that the devil is after you. Well, I'm here to to prayerfully have us focus in on kind of the center view that there is a devil, that there are forces against us, but not everything in this world is is their fault. If you got a flat tire, it's because you parked in a terrible location. Satan did not give you that flat tire, just so we're clear. On the flip side, though, you cannot ignore the reality of spiritual warfare, that there are forces that are greater than you and I that are at work in this world today. And the reality is that we must be aware of these things. We must understand that there are forces at play here. Now, in this section uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is addressing this. And he really begins with this statement of the whole armor of God. Uh, If you would, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and has shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and his faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this day where we have gathered together to hear your word. 
I pray as we study these scriptures that we would focus in on the key truth of this passage. That is that there is a war going on around us. There is something bigger than us that is at play here. But we in faith look to you, Lord, to be our armorer, to be the one who fights alongside of us, who fights for us. And Father, we trust that through you, the victory will come, that you will reign on high, and that we will gather together in the new heavens and the new earth to celebrate your great name. So Father, as we study these verses today, may we learn about you, may we make much of your name, so that we may bring honor and glory to you. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So right here in this section of scripture, in verse 10, Paul begins with a few statements about uh, really the the individual, the people that are our enemies. Uh, Here in verse 10, he begins with, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, he begins this section with a call for strength in the face of Satan's schemes. Paul is fully aware of the forces that we face, both at a physical level, but also at a spiritual level. You see, he's calling us to be aware of our enemy and his forces. And I want you to make no mistake about it, that in this world, we do have an enemy, that his name is Satan. Uh, You can see right here that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we study scripture, there is one great enemy of God that comes up over and over through the verses, and his name is Satan. He goes by many different names, but uh, quite commonly, he's often he's called the accuser, the adversary, the tempter. The murderer and the liar that he is at work in this world today. And he has been at work since uh, the, the garden of Adam and Eve. As we go back to the garden, we see that he was there to tempt Eve to take of this fruit. He was there to tempt Adam to neglect his role as a spiritual leader and allow Eve to go forth into sin. That he and his forces are at work even today. Now, as we think about who Satan is and what he is doing, we don't know a whole lot about him. We know he's the enemy of God. We know that he is against anything that God is for. Uh, As we study scripture, we see that Satan, uh, we believe, is actually a fallen angel. Uh, Isaiah 14, uh, verses 12 through 15, tell us this, that he was one of the heavenly hosts who desired to be God. That he looked at all that God had and the glory and majesty that was arrayed around him. And he said, I want to be that. And so through that, that sin, God cast him and the heaven, this heavenly host that rebelled against him out. That uh, we see that sin doesn't just begin with humanity, but even the angels had temptation and even some of them fell. Now, as if that's not enough, that we have this enemy named Satan that is against us, we also have his forces, that there are those that work with Satan in this world. You see, these forces we wrestle with are the forces of principalities, powers, rulers. You see, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, uh, suggests to us that perhaps a third of the angels that were in heaven fell along with Satan before the foundations of the earth. So as we think through this, there is a a work of evil that is at work in this world. 
uh, that you don't have to be a, a believer to look into the world, to watch the news and to know that things are not quite going well. That might be the understatement of the year, actually, uh, that things are not going well in our world, that there are hot spots all over the world politically and militarily, that there are cultural and racial tensions around the world, that we experience that in our own country, that we can see that there are things that are not quite going the way they should be going. And I would submit to you that much of that is not only due to our sin and our failing as people, but also the work of Satan in this world. Now, Paul begins with this because he wants us to recognize that we have an enemy, that we have someone who is out to get us. He's pointing us to this reality that there is a battle going on around us, that it's an unseen battle. It is one that is occurring on the spiritual level, but there is something that is happening around us. Satan and his forces are a real threat. If you are here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then they want you to stay in that role. They want you to stay a captive to sin and shame. They do not want you to look to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're here as a believer, they want to see you fall into sin. Satan would love nothing more than for each and every one of us to fall into unrepentant sin and fall away from the truth of God. That he would love nothing more for us to chase the things of this world so that we may not bring honor and glory to God's name. Now, why is that? Why, why are we the target for all that Satan and his forces are doing in this world? Well, one, he can't beat God even when he tries. Let's just look at the reality of Jesus. That when Jesus went to the cross, Satan cried out that he had victory. Yet in that moment, we see that Genesis chapter three came true, that though he bruised his heel, that his head was crushed, that through what Satan would call victory, he actually inaugurated the way for us to have redemption in life. That Satan, in the midst of his scheme, thinking I've won it all, actually brought all glory and honor to Christ through his death, burial and resurrection. So Satan cannot defeat God even when he tries. He cannot do anything against him. So what does he go after? The ones that he can, that is you and I. Now, the reason we are his target, so to speak, is this idea called the Imago Dei. Uh, That's a, a Latin phrase, but it means that we're created in the image of God. That you and I are image bearers of God. When Satan looks at us, he sees God. And what better target to take out his anger and his wrath on than those that are the image bearers of God? If that's not enough to drive him to insanity, uh, he looks at those that are believers, you and I that follow God, and he sees Christ's righteousness dwell upon us. So not only does he see a being who's creating the image of God, he sees these image bearers of Jesus Christ walking around. Think of this. Your worst enemy that you've ever had. Everywhere you look, what do you see? Them. If that's not enough, you see people who are, who are clothed in the image of this enemy you have, walking around everywhere. If you're trying to lash out to find a target, what do you go after? Those image bearers. The reality is that we are the target for Satan and his forces. Because we're the only ones he can get to. We're the only ones that they can go after. And so in the midst of that, we are in an onslaught of spiritual warfare. 
Yet Paul tells us here to place our faith, our rest in the strength of the Lord. He says that if we're going to see victory in this battle, it will come through Christ alone. And so as we think through what does that look like in this battle, we know who our enemy is. We know what he is trying to do. We know that he's at work. Well, has God left us alone? Has God left us to be uh, ravaged by this enemy? Has he given us nothing to fight against him? Well, he has. He has given us what we need to fight against him. You see, he's given us some equipment that we need to recognize and pay attention to. That equipment is the armor of God that Paul is writing about here. You see, this equipment lays out all the things that God has given us to successfully wage war on sin in our life. To wage war against Satan and his forces. He's given us each and everything we need so that we may have a life that brings honor and glory to God. Now, as we look at this, we want to recognize that uh, this whole armor is necessary for our growth and protection in this life. That if you're missing a part of it, you are not protected in that sense. If you're missing a part of it, you are not likely growing. And so this is integral not only to this battle of spiritual warfare, but that of growth as a believer. You see, Paul commands us here in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. You see, he is commanding us to put on the armor, to take up the weapons, and to withstand Satan, all of what we do by faith. That he is telling us that when we have the armor of God on, that we are to anchor ourselves on this ground and to give not an inch to the forces of Satan. That we are to stand firm and to tell Satan, no, you will move. That this is what the battle looks like. And so as we think through what this means, we have to talk about this armor, right? We've got to talk about which each one of these items mean. And as we, I said earlier, we're going to get as in-depth as I can in about 30 minutes. Otherwise, we'd be here until dinner time. And y'all don't want to be here till dinner time with me. Trust me. Unless you brought snacks, because we can stay. None of y'all brought snacks. You didn't know. So as we look at these verses, we're going to go as in-depth as we can, looking verse by verse into each component of the armor. And we'll try to talk through what God is doing with each one of these items. The first one that is mentioned here in verse 13. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we're to stand firm with this belt of truth that has been fastened upon us. Uh, as we study this passage, it's a bit unclear about what Paul means by uh, truth here. Uh, is he talking about truthfulness or sincerity of heart? Is he talking about uh, the, the truth of theology and God's doctrine? Is he talking about a true understanding of things of God, the gospel? You know, we're not really sure exactly which one of these is a specific target. But the reality is that each and every one of those things is indeed a truth that we should hold firm to. You see, we should anchor ourselves in these true things. Spiritual warfare begins with the fixing of the truth of the faith, the gospel firmly in our minds. You see, this belt establishes our foundation in life and in our armor. You see, the reason the belt is so important, you have to take yourself back to the mindset of a Roman soldier. Uh, back in those days, everybody wore robes, all right? 
And when you went into battle, you didn't want to go into battle with your robes flowing all over, right? What was going to happen? You were going to trip and fall. So what they would do in this belt of righteousness is take their robes and tuck them up and then take a belt and tie them up. Why? So they had a firm foundation from which to fight from. They were no longer worried about tripping over things. They were no longer worried about falling over themselves. They were no longer concerned with do they need to watch the placement of their feet. No, they had a firm foundation to rest upon. The firm foundation we begin with is the truth of the gospel. That you can't begin to put on the armor until you put on this belt of truth. And that begins with trusting that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That begins with resting in the fact that he has come to seek and save the lost. That you were once a sinner and he has come to seek and save you. That he has brought forgiveness through his death, burial, and resurrection so that you and I may have life. That that is what the foundation of the armor is. And you begin by putting on this belt of truth. And let me tell you something. If you do not have this belt of truth, if you do not believe that the gospel is true, that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save you and your sin and your shame, you need to put the rest of the armor down. It'll do you no good. You will fall over. You will fail in this endeavor of warfare. Everything we do is based on this foundation that Jesus Christ reigns eternal. That he sits on the throne having paid for the debt of our sin and shame so that we may have life eternal in him. That this is the belt of truth. And so as we begin putting on the armor, the first thing we do is to clasp this belt of truth upon us. Now he continues on in his verse and that we are to then put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this righteousness is perhaps pointing to our imputed and personal righteousness. So I'm using a big fun word, imputed, right? Uh, This is our righteousness that has been given to us by Jesus after placing our faith in him. You see, we were sinners before Jesus Christ came into our lives, right? That we were lost in sin, that we were condemned by this sin. And when we cried out to God to forgive us, to bring mercy upon us, to show his grace to us. Not only was our sin forgiven, but our old self was wiped away and that we were a new creation through that process. That new creation is God giving us his righteousness. That is God taking the old sinful Walter and throwing it away and putting on this new robe of righteousness that Christ has given me. That that imputation, that breastplate of righteousness is recognizing that we must begin by looking at the righteousness that Christ has given us. He took our sin and shame to the cross and left it in a grave when he rose again. I got one amen. I don't know if the rest of y'all heard me. That your sin when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is in that grave. It is dead and gone. That tomb was barred for Jesus, but your sin is still there. He clothes us in his righteousness so that when God looks upon us, he sees his son's goodness, not our sin and shame. That we begin with this breastplate of righteousness. But it's not enough just to rest in that righteousness that God has given us. But we must then display that through personal action. That each and every day we are called to live holy lives in word and deed. That we're to put on this new self and continually kill sin in our lives. 
The reality is that each and every day we are to display the goodness of God. This righteousness that he gives us must be known to the world. That people should look upon you. They should talk to you and know that this person, they're a different person. They are not like anyone else I've encountered. They are someone that walks in a different way. They are someone that talks in a different way. And that difference is that Christ's righteousness is resting upon you. And so as Paul writes these words, yes, he is calling us to rest in that righteousness that Christ has given us. But he's also calling us to display that, Christ, that righteousness that Christ has given us. So that the world may see his goodness and celebrate his name. So as we've begun to put on this armor, we have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. Paul continues to write, making sure that we have the proper equipment. He says in verse 14, uh, pardon me, 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This gospel of peace. So Paul is calling us to pay attention to three key words in this verse. You see, there are three key words we want to focus on. That is readiness, gospel, and peace. That he wants us to put on these shoes for our feet. This readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, we can talk about each of those words. You know, peace is something that comes through the gospel. Uh, we, we can talk about those, those words. But what I want you to know is that the key word I believe here is readiness. That we have a readiness from the gospel. You see, as Christians, we understand the good news of the gospel. And we have experienced this peace. We're already clothed in them. We have those shoes on. But this readiness implies that we are going to do something with this good news. These shoes, if you will, are to carry us from place to place. And as we go, we're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to all we encounter. Uh, Paul is, is quoting not only himself in another writing in Romans chapter 10, but he's also quoting from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Romans chapter ten fifteen says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, Paul is playing on uh, this ancient world idea of messengers. Uh, they didn't have telephones back in the day, if you can believe that. Uh, um, perhaps you remember a day where you didn't have a telephone in, in your pocket, right? Uh, they didn't have telephones in those days. Uh, on the day that Paul was writing, you had to send runners everywhere if you wanted to send messages. And in the ancient world, uh, they got to be very good at looking out from the fortifications of the city. And they could look out and they knew if good news or bad news was coming. Why? Well, if bad news was coming, you'd see somebody just kind of slowly walking up, looking rather dejected. Why? Because often in that day, if you were the bearer of bad news, they killed you. Hence where we got the saying, don't shoot the messenger. Makes sense, right? So if you saw someone very slowly walking to your city, you turn to your buddy on the tower and go, it ain't looking good for us today. You knew what was going on. But when you saw someone sprinting down the road, dust flying, hair flapping in the wind, they are coming full speed towards you. You knew that boy's got good news. Something good's about to happen for us today. Why? Because he ain't going to slow down for anything. He is coming and he is going to make sure we hear what he's got to say. 
That as we look at this reality, that they knew good news was coming if you were sprinting. And so my question to you as we think about that we're to ready ourselves with the gospel of peace as these shoes, is what news are you displaying with your feet? What news are you and I displaying with our feet? Are we walking dejectedly through life? Are we walking through life with this air of defeat and sorrow around us? Or are we sprinting through life, openly declaring the goodness of God, celebrating all that he's done? That as we run through this thing called life, we shout out to people the goodness of God, the good news that he has given us so that the world may see, hear, and respond to the greatness of Christ's name. What news are you displaying with your feet? What news are you displaying with your feet? Now, Paul continues that we've got the belt of truth. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. We've got the gospel of peace. He continues on with the statement of the shield of faith. In verse 16, he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, uh, this shield of faith is a crucial one. Let's first begin with these flaming darts. So again, getting ourselves back into this mindset of the Roman soldier, one of the most common ways you would take out an enemy army is to take your arrows, dip them in something flammable, and then shoot it at someone else. People tend to not fight very well when they're on fire. Surprise, I know. And so as they would do that, they would shoot these flaming arrows out into the enemy ranks to try and break up their formations, to try and slow them down, to make sure that they can get all there together. And the Romans, being the, the good strategists that they are, recognized that this was a problem. When your team was on fire, you didn't really have a chance at winning. And so these guys began to think through what does that look like? They've created these shields, not your traditional small shield, but this shield is about four feet tall, about two feet wide, and they gave every single soldier one of those shields. And what they would do is they would line up at the front of the formation, and every man up front had a shield just like this. And the guys behind them had a shield that they would hang up like this above them, and so on and so forth. So they had this impenetrable wall of shields. Not only that, they recognized that their shields were usually made out of wood. So that's pretty flammable normally, right? They would drape animal skins that were soaked on their shields. Why? So those flaming arrows would be extinguished. Now, why do we go in this great detail about these shields? You're not here to hear about ancient military tactics and history. You're here to hear about the gospel. You see, this shield of faith that God has given us shows us that we're not alone in this fight. You see, Paul is telling us that this is not the saving faith that he has referenced, but a living and active faith. That once you put your trust in God, that your faith is not just left aside, that it is continually at work, that you are continually growing and seeing him work in your world. This allows us to trust in the promises and powers of God. It is knowing that when God says he is able to keep us from falling and present us before his presence with exceeding joy, he means exactly that and that he will do that. 
You see, this shield of faith is one that we can withstand the barbs of the enemy by planting it in front of us and going, my God is greater than anything you would say to me, Satan. My God is greater than anything you would put in my path. Every word you accuse me of, every temptation you would put in front of me, everything you would say about me and my life is nothing before the power of God. In fact, every word you accuse me of, you're right, Satan. I am everything that you say. But for the grace of God, I am no longer that. Every word that Satan accuses us with is true. But by the grace of God, we are no longer that person he was condemning. By the grace of God, we now have this shield of faith anchored on our arm. So that when he cries out those words, that we're able to plant it. And they are extinguished. It is not extinguished by the strength of your faith or my faith, but by the strength of the one that we have faith in. And so in this fight, we are not alone because when we are defending ourselves, it is not my skill or my faith, your faith or your skills. It is the one that we have faith in who is doing the fighting for us. Now, this also tells us this isn't a singular faith, right? We just talked about those Roman soldiers. That it's a group of them in a line, huddled together. The reality is that as we think through this, we are not to go into battle alone. If it's just me here with my shield, what happens? They start shooting me from this side. And when I turn, they shoot me from back here. But when it's a group of us with our shields, guess what? We can cover each and every angle. There's no avenue for Satan to attack us. There's no avenue for his forces to come at us. Why? Because we're not walking alone. Because I know that Ed has my back and that Troy has my back and that Brian has my back. That I know that if I turn this way, one of them's got that side for me. That I know that here in this body that is true as well for each and every man, woman, and child that is a part of this church. We are walking with one another. That Paul is urging us to have each other's back. We've talked a lot in the last few weeks uh, about the church being a body, being a family. That we are to live life together. That we're not to go through this life alone. Why? Because Lone Ranger Christians are the first ones who die. That if we're going to wield the shield of faith effectively, if we're going to wield the faith that God has given us, that it's going to be done in a group. It's going to be done with a body of like-minded believers who love Christ and love you enough to have your back in the midst of the storm. That I know that I can count on my fellow brothers and sisters in this congregation. That I know that when Satan comes after me, that you will be there for me. That is what Christ is calling us to. That is that faith that we anchor ourselves in. Now Paul continues on. We're not completely armored yet. We've got a few more pieces to place on. In verse 17 he says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This helmet of salvation that we place upon us, this is one that guards our head. I believe that Paul is making a direct implication, a direct cry to us that we are to guard our minds as believers. That when we are focused on the things of God, Satan and his forces cannot easily lead us astray. When you are focused on the things of God, 
Satan and his forces cannot easily lead astray. That means that we look forward to the unity we will once share with Christ one day once we've passed from this world. We walk and work with the end of mind. I just, I need you to understand something here. Let's make no mistake about it. Satan can scare you. Satan and his forces can scare you. They can harm you. They can even kill you. If we're just talking about the reality in this world. They have power to do these things. Yet the one thing they cannot do is steal your eternal destiny from you when you're anchored in Christ. That when you recognize that you're living with the end in mind, that you're looking towards unity with Christ one day when you pass from this world, you can confidently cry out the words to Satan and his forces to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm quoting the very words of Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. That Paul would say these words to the Roman captives and they would say, we're going to kill you. And he would say, to die is gain. Come at me, bro. They would say, we're going to let you live. Well, to live is Christ. That he was confident in his eternal destiny. And that confidence, that anchoring yourself in the eternal salvation that you have, allows you to live this life in such a way that you can focus on all that God is going to do for you and let Satan and his forces be damned. Because the story, let me tell you how this story ends. It ends with Christ on the throne, victorious, defeating sin and death, destroying Satan and his forces, casting them into the lake of fire. This story doesn't end with Satan having this last stand. This story ends with Jesus crushing him and ending sin and shame in this world, ending death and destruction so that the people of God may gather together for all eternity to celebrate all that he's done for them. That when you recognize that the end of the story is that Christ has complete and total victory, Satan and his forces are not quite so scary anymore. So let them scare you. Let them harm you. Let them even take your life. Why? Because you are anchored in Christ. And to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that's not all that Paul says in these verses. He tells us to put on this helmet of salvation. But he also calls us to wield the sword of the Spirit. You see, this verse gives us the only weapon described here in this armor. That this verse is Paul urging us to fight back against Satan with the word of God. That he says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I'm going to get into a little Bible nerd for you, so forgive me. This is important. Uh, The word word right there in the Greek, it's not the normal logos that we see. That's the kind of blanket usage of word in the Greek. Rather, this is a different word. This is one that is called rima. That this word is not the same meaning. It actually means a specific word or saying. You see, what Paul is pointing us to is to not just to lean upon the general word of God, but to recall and fight Satan with specific words of God. That is with scripture that we have learned and memorized. You see, he's calling us to emulate Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus is in the desert after he's been baptized and he is beginning his ministry, he has the three temptations from Satan where he's going through the desert and Satan is tempting him in three different ways. And every time when Satan tempts him, Jesus answers with, 
it is written. And he quotes scripture. It is written. You and I, when we are in this war called life, the only weapon we have is to cry out. It is written. And to tell Satan and his forces what has been written. You see, we're to memorize scripture so that we may combat the schemes of Satan and his forces. We're to use the word of God that dwells in our heart on a day-to-day basis to remind us of the truth of the gospel and to combat Satan on the battlefield. That if we are to be victorious in this fight, it will begin with founding our faith, trusting our faith to the foundation of the gospel. And it will end with us crying out the words of Christ as they are written to see Satan and his foes, his forces, be defeated. Now, as Paul's talked through our equipment, he's put us in position. He's told us who our enemy is. He's given us the equipment we need to fight. But he's not content to just leave us there. Then he concludes with some encouragement for us. You see... As we think through this, he's finished his commentary on spiritual warfare. And he finishes specifically with prayer. You see, read with me in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth. Boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. You see, this isn't just an end note for us. Paul is getting to perhaps what is the most important part of the letter. We can go to war with our shiny armor on yet fail to triumph because we do not call upon the Lord. There is a Puritan by the name of William Gurnell. He wrote a commentary on these verses. He wrote on the spiritual warfare, these aspects that are listed here. He calls it the complete armor of God. He wrote over 1,200 pages on spiritual warfare from these verses, right? We'd be here a while if we were reading that. Over 400 of those pages are on these three verses of prayer. A third of his work is on prayer. You see, this is not just an end note in Paul wrapping up the letter. But he has talked through this armor that God has equipped us with. And he's saying, now let me encourage you to do this. This is how the war will be won. Through prayer. Now he tells us to pray at all times in the spirit. That uh, is bringing to mind 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That we're to pray without ceasing. That Paul is telling us we should always be connected to God. Good or bad, sickness or health, go to God. That he's telling us to continually focus on him. That we're to never hang up on him. That essentially he wants us to keep the call open. That the problem in communicating with God is not that God is not listening, it's that we're not talking. God is always listening, always ready to hear us. That even now we know scripture tells us that Jesus is at the throne with him, interceding on our behalf. That we don't even know what to say. The Holy Spirit is working and and groaning for us to cry out to God. Even when we don't have words to cry out. 
that paints a picture of a God who wants us to come to him. And so Paul tells us to begin by praying at all times. He also tells us to pray with all prayer and supplication. You see, in Scripture, we see that there are many types of prayer. There's your standard prayer like we do every day. There's prayers of supplication. There's prayers of intercession. There's prayers of thanksgiving. There are prayers of lament. There are so many ways you can pray. And what Paul wants us to recognize is that every prayer you pray is a weapon against Satan. Every time you pray, you are taking up arms against Satan and his forces. Even if your prayer is crying out to God, why me? Why am I here? Why am I experiencing this? Because you're going to God and saying, God, I don't understand this, but would you show me what you're doing? And that is another another moment where you're fighting against Satan. He tells us we're to pray with perseverance. Perseverance means we're to stick to it and not quit. This is not us trying to twist God's arm. Rather, this is us being deeply concerned and burdened about this. That we cannot rest until we get God's answer. How many of us lost sleep over something that we were just worried was going to happen? How many of us have stayed up having sleepless nights, concerned about the things of our day? How many of us have missed hours of sleep because we just have anxiety about things? We've all done it. A few of you are waving both hands, got your feet in there. Like we all have been there. When we lose the sleep, that is a perfect time for us to go to the Lord in prayer. You see, prayer is not about getting man's will done in heaven. No, it's about getting God's will done on earth. That when we pray, we are not crying out to God. I want you to do it my way in heaven. No, we're crying out on earth as it is in heaven. That when we cry out these words, we're saying to God, God, work your will in this world. I am worried about this. I am concerned about this. And I am waiting for an answer. Because I want to hear what your answer is, not what mine is. And finally, in prayer, Paul tells us to pray for all the saints. That we're to pray as a part of a great family that is also talking to God. And I'm not just talking about this family here in this local church. We talked about this in Sunday school last week. We have the Big C Church, the Catholic Church, that is the church universal, right? The church all over the world that is gathering together even now to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. But when we also pray, we're praying with the church eternal. That is all the saints that have passed before us that are in heaven now. That even now they are gathering together to celebrate and worship what God has done and what he is doing and what he will do. If you think that your prayer doesn't have power, just imagine that all the Christians through all ages are praying with you. That that is the church eternal. That we're to pray as a part of this great family. We're to pray for each other, but we're to pray in confidence that there are fellow family members who are right there in the trenches with us. And then finally, Paul himself asked for prayer from the Ephesians. Paul himself says, pray for me. You see, this is Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, asking for prayer. In fact, if he needed the prayer of the saints, how much more than you and I need, right? Right? 
If Paul himself is saying, pray for me, I certainly know that you and I need someone to intercede for us. Perhaps a a question we can ask as we think through how to pray in the midst of spiritual warfare. This is perhaps the best question you can ask to guide your prayer life. If God answered all your prayers this week, what would happen? If God answered all of your prayers this week, what would happen? For most of us, our lives would be a bit more enriched, right? Some things would go a little better in our lives. Perhaps that bill would get paid. Perhaps that car would get fixed. Perhaps we'd get the house that we wanted. But few others' lives would be enriched. A question we should ask each and every day as we go to the Lord in prayer is if God answered every single one of our prayers this week, what would happen? That if we're truly praying as Paul would urge us to, then the world would be would be shattered the way it is. That revival would occur, that people would repent of their sins, that the church would rise up. That, yes, perhaps our lives would be made better in some material sense, in some earthly way, but the world would be changed and shaken to its very core. That if we're to pray as Paul is calling us to pray, that changes things. Remember, we are not praying for our will to be done in heaven, but for heaven's will to be done on earth. Those are two different prayers. And so this week, as we wrestle with how to pray, ask this question to yourself each and every day. If God answered all your prayers this week, what would happen? What would happen? Now, the point of all this, as Paul is writing these letters, is for us to be encouraged to understand the things that God is doing in this world. He continues in verse 21, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. That from 2,000 years ago, Paul is writing these words so that we may be encouraged, so that our hearts may be encouraged by the work of Christ in his life and in our lives today. And Paul concludes with this, these verses to be cried out for all eternity, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Christ Jesus with love incorruptible. You see, those verses, those are why Paul wrote these words. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Band, if you would, please come forward. You see, Paul wrote these words so that you and I may experience the grace of God. He wrote these words so that those of us who are in sin and shame may look to Jesus, may look upon this crucified and resurrected Savior and say, forgive me for my sins. That we could cry out to this this God who hung upon the cross for the appointed time so that he may pay for the debt of our sin and shame. That we can cry out to this God and say, forgive me, for I am unclean. Forgive me, for I am unworthy. Forgive me, for I have fallen short of the glory of God. And that we cry out to a God who is not 
impotent. We cry out to a God who is not unfaithful. We cry out to a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-too-willing to work in this world to see our lives be turned to Him. Who is all-too-willing to work in this world so that we may look upon Him and cry out, You are my Lord and Savior. And so today, as we have studied these words, we now are able to see that God has worked in our world in a mighty way. That in the midst of this spiritual warfare, in the midst of the battles that are raging around us, we are able to anchor ourselves in this eternal truth that Christ sits on the throne and victory will be His. And then if you are here today and you're saying, I want to share in that victory, then this is your opportunity. Look to God our Father and cry out that I have been faithless. I have failed. I have not lived to this standard that you have set, Lord. Forgive me for those sins and trespasses. Let me be a part of your family. And then you too will enter into the kingdom of God and be a part of what God is doing. Today here in the next few minutes, I'll be up here. Pastor Troy will be here. Rachel will be here as well. And you'll have opportunity to respond. If God is doing anything in your life, if you have questions, if you want to talk about what he's telling you, we are here. As we've talked about the reality of spiritual warfare today, let's make no mistake about it. That even now, Satan is working in our lives to try and show that he is powerful over you. That you are going to be tempted to sit there and say nothing. You're going to be tempted to not see. You're going to be tempted to throw away everything we've talked about and put it aside. Look to Christ, our Lord and Savior. The one who has the victory. And cry out, your name is great. And I trust in you alone, Father. That is our cry today. So if I may, may I pray for you and we continue to sing of what God has done for us in this time of worship. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for today and for allowing us to experience the goodness of your grace. I pray that even now that our hearts would be open and receptive to the words that you've put in the scriptures today. May our hearts and minds be open to you so that we may encounter the truth of the gospel. That is, that you have come to seek and save the lost. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for allowing him to pay for the debt of our sin and shame upon the cross so that we may sing of your great name. We know that as we say these words that you are a good, good father. That you are at work in this world today and that you will always have time for your children. So let us celebrate your great name today by singing your praises. To sing out that you are worthy. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We pray these things in your name. Amen.